0: Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla Houston and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Kristen? George, you want me to say a thing? Heyo. <laughs> Each episode we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. This episode, we have invited back a previous guest, Alexandra Sunders, saying hello. Hi! We invited you here to talk with us about forced labor. So it's going to be a real um lighthearted and fun episode probably, right Kristen? Not a downer at all. Not a downer yeah. at all. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's how we get people to stay to the end is we fib. <laughs> so, we're not going to go into our challenges this episode, but we will on a follow-up episode because Forced labor, it turns out, is huge, and we didn't want to record a three-hour podcast episode. You're welcome, listener. (laughs) So Kristen's going to, I think, lead the charge on uh, the research that she's done, and hopefully Lex is going to have some interesting things to add because she is very knowledgeable, and if you guys missed our episode on food history and sugar, we strongly recommend it. And now we're going to talk about something that's just as depressing, probably more so.
1: (laughs)
2: Uh, Before we do that, though, I just want to uh, remind everybody of Lex's amazing credentials. So Lex is currently a second year PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, she also has a BA and an MA from the University of Toronto. So Lex, are you super into the Raptors uh, comeback right now? Oh, oh my
1: God. I almost <laughs> had a full-on heart attack in my apartment last night. I was <laughs> I, it, I'm not sure if I was slow motion or fast motion dying, I was certainly dying on my couch in my apartment. <laughs> and when the basket went in I was like, oh. And then I proceeded to watch like 47 million hours of Raptors highlights that I text forwarded to everyone that knows me. Um, so it's gotten to the point where in my cohort, uh, I am the person that just when there's any Raptors trivia or fun things on Twitter, my cohort now knows to send them to me for comment. <laughs> like the Raptors PR department in champagne.
2: Love it. <laughs> Uh, For people who may not have uh, been into the basketball playoffs, uh, the Raptors, very behind at the time of recording, they were, um, they had just come back to get one victory in their series um, after this very dramatic buzzer beater. Everyone in
0: Toronto is very excited about it. Uh (laughs) See, I learned a thing just Uh (laughs) now. We're already learning at the start of the episode. I learned that basketball is on. Wait, what? I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) It's the only thing that's good. All other things that are good are pre-recorded and could come to an end at any moment with no schedule for recording more. That's true.
0: That is absolutely 100% (laughs) true. Thanks, world. (laughs)
1: Except pullback, obviously, which we are recording now.
2: Yes. (laughs) A close second to the NBA playoffs. That's what we always say. Um, yeah, so maybe we'll dig into forced labor because we've already tricked people into thinking this was going to be a lighthearted episode. <laughs> uh, so I want to start by um, actually just taking an excerpt from an Amnesty International report. Because uh, I think a lot of the times in our podcast, we focus on statistics. And so I want to just read a, a situation. Um, And I think it's one that's pretty emblematic of how forced labor happens today. But I'm also curious um, to hear from Lex if it has sort of any touch points to things that you've read about in your sort of history research. So here we go. When Suresh, aged 39, first considered leaving his village in Santari District for a foreign job, he hoped that it might be a life-changing experience that would set him and his family up for a more secure financial future. His first step was to contact an agent in his village who knew about job opportunities abroad. The agent had good news. He could offer him a work in a Malaysian glove-making factory. Pay would be relatively high at $420 U.S. per month, and conditions would be good with one day off every week, safe working conditions, and clean accommodation. Ultimately, the agent said this would give Suresh the chance to save money and buy land for his family. But this chance was costly. Suresh had to pay the village agent, as well as the Kathmandu Recruitment Agency, who would finalize the deal up front. To get his job, Suresh borrowed $2,416 American dollars from a local moneylender, at an annual interest rate of 36%. Although the recruitment fee was enormous and illegal, Suresh's agent and the Kathmandu agency assured him that he would be able to quickly pay off the debt once he started earning in Malaysia. The reality was very different. At the glove-making factory, Suresh was unpaid for months on end, and when he was paid, his employer made a number of unexplained deductions from his salary. Suresh could not leave and get a new job because his passport had been taken away, and his employer refused to end his contract or even allow him to leave the factory. In desperation, Suresh turned to his recruitment agency for help. They did not return his calls. Instead of making money, when Suresh finally returned to Nepal in 2015, he had accumulated a staggering debt of 5,000 US dollars. I thought that that was sort of a good example to start the the topic off with because it includes a lot of things that um, we'll talk about when we talk about how forced labor works in the modern context. Um, But I'm curious if there's sort of like anything that sprang to mind for you, Lex.
1: I'm always slightly surprised at how little is different. Uh, when I hear reports like this. Um, So I'm just pulling up a set of documents that I have been working with for the last six or seven months that is about the condition of Indian indentured labor in the, I guess it's mid 1800s to early 1900s. So this would be after the abolition of slavery in the 1830s until... The formal abolition of indenture, depending on your location, in the early 1900s up until probably around the 1920s or 30s, depending on where you are. Yeah, the the conditions are not that different, unfortunately. Um, and so, I have been looking at a lot of testimony and stuff in the 1800s about the condition of the contract and what's in the contract and how do you sign up to get uh, a job in indentured labor, and so. The first thing that stood out to me is that there is both a local recruiter and a recruiting agency in the region that Suresh had to pay because a local recruiter and some form of recruiting agency is almost always what the setup was in the period and locations that I study. That local recruiter, depending on your time period and your location is sometimes a village elder or a family member, someone who has a lot of authority in your life and who you probably have known for a long time or who Someone you know has known for a long time, and one thing I think that is like underplayed in that amnesty report is the pressure that comes with that kind of recruitment because someone telling you, trust me, if you go to the city you'll make more money when there's someone you know is uh, a huge a huge amount of pressure and often the recruiters are paid some kind of bounty at least in the time period I'm looking at and I don't imagine the incentives have changed a lot but they're often paid some kind of like headhunting fee per person that they get to sign up to these contracts, which sounds a lot like the piece that you just read. Um, And then the other thing that really struck me is that he said he was tricked and that he saw arbitrary charges um, on his record and that he can't do anything about it. That's, That's incredibly similar to the period that I'm working on. Um, you know, I, I'm working on an article that deals with direct testimony from indentured laborers in Natal, which is in South Africa and is now a part of the province of KwaZulu-Natal. But you know, uh, here's one testimony that sounds a lot like Suresh, uh, and it's dated 1913 um, from a man named Ramsami. And it says, I have come to complain... I have not been paid my wages for the last 11 months. During this period, I have wages due to me at the rate of 13 cents per month. The last pay I received from Mr. Hedigan was only before last 12 and nothing since. I have had to live the whole time on the rations supplied to me that is rice, mealy meal, dal, oil, and salt. Whenever I asked for my wages, I was either threatened or knocked about by the manager, Mr. Hedigan." I was employed in the house as a house servant on the tobacco plantation where Mr. Hedigan was staying until 11 days ago. Mr. Hedigan has moved on to his farm and wants to make chiruts, which work I am unable to do. I pray to be employed on the tobacco plantation, which place has been taken over by another gentleman named Mr. Coos. And then because the worker is uh, presumably illiterate, uh, there is just a space where he would have left his mark to affirm that it's his own statement. But that's 1913, and Suresh's testimony doesn't sound that different.
2: Yeah, a century la- later, it's still pretty much the same tools. <laughs> so I, I guess that um, that in itself is really telling, you know. Um, forced labor is a problem that I think a lot of people assume has mostly gone away today, and it really hasn't. So that's one of the points that I'd like to make through this podcast Um, But first, I suppose it makes sense to kind of break it down by talking about what forced labor is. Um, So please feel welcome to chime in at any point, but I'll just uh, talk a little bit about the definition of forced labor. So forced labor is a form of modern slavery. Uh, According to the International Labor Organization, forced labor is basically all work or service that is extracted from any person under the menace of any penalty and for which uh, the said person has not offered themselves voluntarily. That definition has basically two components. The first one is that there has to be the menace of a penalty. So that penalty can be anything from penal sanctions or a loss of rights and privileges. Um, It can also be Physical violence or restraint, but there are also sort of more subtle forms of penalty that can be applied, including denouncing victims to the police or to immigration authorities. And penalties can also be financial. So debt bondage, we saw that in the example of, of Suresh, and uh, wage theft, which is also sort of a common feature of forced labor. In other cases, people may have their documents confiscated. So that's the, that is the first component of forced labor. The second one is the involuntary nature of the work. And these two things kind of go hand in hand, but for this criterion, uh, the ILO looks at things like um, what is the method and the content of consent? Uh, Were there any external constraints or was there indirect coercion? And is it possible to freely revoke given consent? It's often the case that victims of forced labor enter these situations initially on their own accord And then later they discover that they're not free to withdraw their own labor. Um, I thought it was interesting that the ILO definition excludes prison work, which I just found to be kind of telling, (laughs) you know, that there's something in there about international organizations uh, and politics. I don't know who negotiated that, but feels like it should count. That's
0: interesting, leaving prisons out.
1: Yeah, yeah. And very pertinent to the current situation, uh, especially if people listening have followed um, the way that California fights its wildfires using prison labor um, and how those same prisoners, even with the qualifications they had been forced to gain through that labor, uh, are then not entitled to be firefighters when they're released because you can't have a record and be a firefighter.
0: Whoa, that is... (sighs) That's really that was shitty. super fucked up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it turns out that if you manage to get an important qualification like that that could set you up for financial stability and participating in your community, you uh you might just literally not be allowed to.
0: Isn't rehabilitation like the whole point of prison? No. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> no, I know it's not. I know it's not. But isn't that like the argument? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean obviously in the United States the whole point of prison is to make a profit but
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: yeah it's i mean the world is a dumpster inferno at this point um <laughs> anyway i just thought that was an interesting omission uh forced labor it includes a a few different things so slavery i think we had been talking about this in the sugar episode but slavery is a type of forced labor, but it is, uh, not all forced labor. Um, there are also bonded labor and debt bondage that are sort of slightly different categories. And one line of debate, at least that I, as far as I was able to find out in my authoritative Googling this week, um, is like, does forced labor constrain the topic too much? Like, should we really be talking about all forms of unfree labor? um, is sort of another line of debate. Lex, do you have a good um good way to distinguish forced labor from like slavery specifically?
1: I mean, so interestingly in uh the circles that I'm like reading and investigating in um you know, it it super depends on location. So first of all, in North America, we tend uh towards a not a binary, but we tend towards a sort of systematic categorizing of labor that really puts chattel slavery in North America at one end of things. And everything is sort of arranged along the spectrum according to how much it lines up with that experience. One thing that that does is it makes it a little bit easier for people to have a heuristic in their head in the North American context of what forced labor has looked like on the land we live on now, Um, over time. But what that does do, uh, and what is the subject of a lot of some polite and some not so polite debate uh, in academic circles, at least, is that obscures a lot of other forms of uh, enslavement and forced labor that have existed in other regions and in other time periods. And so you'll hear this a lot with people who want to discredit or downplay the extent to which we teach and research about the slave trade and the experience of enslaved Africans in North America and enslaved African-Americans is uh, they will say, well, like we shouldn't pay attention to only that, Uh, which sure is true. Although it's important to ask what people's motives are when they think they need to tell you that. But uh, what happens, I think a lot of the time when people are trying to define forced labor, at least in North America is like, because it's so skewed towards differentiating and, you know, when there's the right intentions behind it towards giving actual credit for the horror of the experience of chattel slavery where it is due. Um, people have kind of fuzzy definitions of everything since or everything that existed alongside it. So I don't I don't have a clear uh, definition, um, especially because. My definition keeps getting less and less clear as what I study appears more and more in the contemporary context, and things get fuzzier and fuzzier when you're told that things were abolished that continue to exist.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess um, one thing to pull out of that is just that all of these categories seem like they're fiercely debated. Um, I suppose it makes sense given how, um, like, how high the stakes are for the people that are involved in as victims of forced labor, as victims of slavery, whatever you want to call it, historically and today. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how forced labor works. So in the modern context, at least, I don't know if this is how it works historically, you can let me know. Um, But there are basically two main phases of forced labor. Um, The first one is recruitment. And the second one is sort of a system of control and exploitation. Forced labor usually begins with some kind of unfree recruitment, and that usually involves either deception or coercion, or sometimes both. Coercive recruitment can involve things like debt bondage or confiscation of documents, can also occur through abuse of a financial situation, an abuse of irregular migrant status, or abuse of a difficult family situation. Deceptive recruitment is where there are promises that are made at the time of recruitment that aren't fulfilled, Um, victims most commonly are deceived about wages, working conditions, the jobs themselves, and the length of stay. So pretty much everything you'd want to (laughs) know before you start a new job. Uh, Yeah. So then after you've had the Unfree recruitment. People in situations of forced labor work under exploitative conditions. That can include low salaries, delayed payments, imposed poor living conditions, excessive work, and lack of social protection. There might be threats of or actual physical harm. There might be restriction of movement or confinement to the workplace or within a limited area. Wages might be withheld, or there may be excessive wage reduction that violates the agreements. There might be the retention of passports or identity documents, and then threats of denunciation to the authorities um, may be made when the worker has an irregular immigration status. In the context of forced labor today, debt bondage is a really prominent feature of how it works. About half of forced labor that was imposed by private actors involves debt bondage, and uh, In particular, debt bondage is really prevalent in agriculture, domestic work, and manufacturing um, forced labor. It occurred in more than 70% of cases for those categories. Just a quick note as well that um, forced labor is different from substandard or exploitative working conditions. So you can have a situation where somebody may have like egregiously unsafe working conditions um, or maybe working for what we wouldn't call a living wage. And those might be things that we would oppose, but may not necessarily mean the person is, um, you know, categorized in the context of forced labor. It has to do with those two um, things that I talked about before, right? There has to be a menace of a penalty, and the, the work has to be involuntary.
0: Yeah, see, like, based on those two factors, I would personal, I like, I would include prison work. Uh, just a like a little teaser for when we eventually talk about my challenge my challenge does involve discussing prison labor a little bit so um you know tune into that on our future episode and uh, you'll see kind of where i fall on that but i i would say it that's forced that's forced labor you're being forced to do it and you're definitely being punished if you don't
2: yeah i mean i think um depending on the prison context like i can see a world in which you have a prison where you could set the conditions for voluntary labor. But I think you're right that definitely in the context you were talking about, it's forced labor. Um, But even in sort of like, I mean, we're talking about the California wildfire situation. There's, I mean, maybe it's not forced labor, but it's not particularly free labor either. You know, maybe there's a murky
0: ground there. I feel like everything here is murky.
1: One thing I would say uh, that I've found as I research is, I think I had a much stronger attachment to to trying to blend the the boundaries on what different types of forest labor uh, are when I started researching this topic a couple of years ago, and now after a year and a little bit of research, like one thing that has really struck me as I have attempted to broaden that research and as I've taken more classes that have to do with slavery, for example, is that the arbitrariness of these boundaries is not historically arbitrary um, because all of these definitions of what forced labor is, the conversations around those, at least in the North American and often the European context, really start emerging uh, in the anti-slavery years and in the years where uh, abolition occurs in various European empires. You don't need to say what forced or unforced labor is when you're allowed to enslave someone. And so, you know, if we see any reflections of that in our own society, it might be a bit of a hint that when we can't tell the difference between forced and unforced labor, it's probably a sign that we allow labor practices that are really harmful in other circumstances that make it really hard to justify cutoffs and uh, stopping points and boundaries and restrictions in. Other industries in other uh, time periods. You know the the first thing that comes to mind for me is, yeah, you're not technically forced by anyone. You know, it's not a gun to your head situation, for lack of better terminology, when you are unemployed to start working again. But if I am compelled by circumstance to provide for my family by getting whatever job I can get my hands on, especially in the era we're living in now with COVID layoffs and uh, companies closing down, it's not much consolation or solace to me that I am, quote unquote, free if my tipped minimum wage in many US states is below $5. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Here, yeah. here. Well said. <laughs> and this has been an advertisement
1: for tipping 30% or more during COVID. Like <laughs>
0: <laughs> or an advertisement for getting rid of tipping altogether and just paying a living wage.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh man, Kristen loves the no tipping uh, topic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> My thing is maybe maybe in theory we should have should not have tipping, but until we m- raise the minimum wage by a lot more, don't be the person that doesn't tip and says it's on principled grounds. That's where I stand.
1: <laughs> <laughs> for sure.
2: Uh, all right, so I think it's probably helpful to also talk about what the scale of forced labor is. Um, and like with the caveat that this is the be- to the best of researchers' abilities, it's very hard to actually measure this kind of stuff because by nature it's sort of underground. But in total, there are an estimated 40 million people around the world who are in modern slavery. And that is roughly the same as the population of Canada. So you think about the entire population of this country, spread that around the world, that is the scale of modern slavery. So modern slavery includes forced labor as well as forced marriage. If we're just talking about forced labor, that's a slightly smaller but still quite substantial amount. Um, at any given time, an estimated 25 million people are victims of forced labor. So to give you context on that, that is roughly the same as the population of Australia. And that's just at any given time. So if you, if you look at it from a slightly different perspective and ask, like, who has been affected by forced labor in the past five years, that figure gets a lot bigger. One estimate found that approximately... 89 million people experienced some form of modern slavery in the last five years. Whoa. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) So those estimates are from a study called the Global Estimates of Modern Slavery, and that was uh, a report that was done by the ILO and a couple of other organizations. We'll link to it in the show notes. Somewhere between 83% and 90% of the world's forced laborers are working for the private sector. So it seems like at one point, a lot of the discussion internationally about forced labor was really focused on state imposed forced labor. But actually, I mean, that, that is definitely something that happens. But most of the forced labor that we're talking about in like a present day context is happening through private actors. It's not states imposing forced labor on people. It's primarily, you know... Capitalists? Yeah, it's it's a capitalist forced labor. <laughs> <laughs> it's estimated that forced labor generates annual profits of about 150 billion US dollars. So it's very profitable. <laughs>
0: gross, 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 gross.
2: Yeah, I do want to briefly talk about state-imposed forced labor, even though um, it's... A small proportion of it, because I think it is important to note that it does occur. And it, and it is slightly different from other forms of forced labor. There are about um, at least 2.2 million people worldwide trapped in state or rebel imposed forms of forced labor. You can kind of think about like one example of that is child soldiers. Um, we also in our fast fashion episode talked about the Uzbekistan government's um, connection to forced labor in the cotton industry. And then I'm sure people have heard about, um, you know, Chinese re- re-education camps and the weaker Muslim population, uh, which has a lot of forced labor in it. So those are all examples. Uh, but there's one that I hadn't heard of before that I want to give a little bit of attention because it's really fucked up. Not that the stuff we're talking about isn't fucked up. This whole episode is just fucked up things. Uh, but North Korea apparently North Korea apparently has what they call an overseas worker program. So apparently North Korea sends somewhere between 50,000 and 120,000 of its citizens uh, to work overseas. And basically what happens is they'll send these workers out and the government then receives Somewhere between 70 and 90 percent of the wages that these workers make, um, just to sort of prop up the regime.
0: So that's, that's fucked up. <laughs> well, and I just quickly Googled the population of North Korea because I was like, "Holy shit, 100,000 people is a lot, and their population's only 25 million, so yikes.
2: Yeah, that's not an insubstantial proportion. <laughs> that's messed up. So what happens to these people who are sent away? So they're sent to work in, there are a couple of dozen countries that receive North Korean overseas workers, but most of them end up going to China or Russia. Sure. Yeah. And they end up being employed mostly in mining, logging, textiles, and construction. Uh, the UN has documented like how shitty these working conditions are. As you would imagine, I mean, it's a forced labor program run by the north korean government it's not going to be great (laughs) but yeah the workers basically they don't know the details of their employment contract they receive their tasks according to their state assigned social class so if you have a higher state assigned social class you're going to get a better overseas job whereas if your your social class is lower you'll get a worse job um, while they're there, they're under constant surveillance and uh they are threatened with repatriation if they commit infractions. So yeah, that's a thing that
0: happens. So how do they get these jobs? Are they like just randomly assigned or do they apply for them thinking they're something else?
2: I don't know how the North Korean regime chooses them, but there's like the regime is heavily involved in working with the businesses that use North Korean workers. And actually, um the presence of North Korean workers is considered to be sort of like a litmus test for, oh, there's probably other forced labor happening in this particular business place because that's a businessman who doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: It points out, I think, uh, the sort of way that governments tend to be involved in this thing, uh, which is most of them are not nearly as active as the North Korean government in finding these jobs and assigning people to them. But there are lots of governments that look the other way, so to speak, uh, when their citizens choose to cross a border for higher wages, um, or to spend much of the year abroad. And so, you know, if you're looking for unsavory working conditions, if not explicitly forced ones, it's often uh, helpful to try and figure out which countries are in a position to make a bunch of their money off of remittances. Because sure, some remittances are, you know, a kid who got a college degree and has just moved to a different place and is sending money home to their parents or their grandparents or aunts and uncles to build something new or build a home for the family or something for them to retire to. But so often the case is that governments don't participate in actively creating those working conditions but they do absolutely nothing to stop uh citizens from their country from taking up positions that they know to be deeply exploitative and i'm I'm thinking here even just of like you know the situation of many filipina caregivers in canada and the scandal that erupted a couple of years ago around was it an mp that had uh confiscated her nanny's passport i believe um which is one of the hallmarks, and it was at home.
2: I I don't remember who um, the person that was involved with that was, but yeah, it's, (sighs) I mean, it's for a more recent example, you can look at, well, it's not necessarily forced labor, there are probably instances of forced labor, but the situation of like seasonal agricultural workers, the extent to which we're not protecting them from covid I don't know. I just it seems likely that we're not protecting them in other ways as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If people want to hear more about um how messed up the COVID situation is for seasonal agricultural workers in Canada, Front Burner is a great podcast that recently did an episode about that. That was yeah, just really it was really eye-opening and also not like, I don't know, deeply surprising because everything sucks everywhere.
2: <laughs> yeah. So we know that there's a lot of forced labor out there. Um, I wanna also dig in a bit to where it happens. And the short answer is everywhere, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so forced labor is the most prevalent in Asia and the Pacific where four out of every a 1,000 people were victims, but it is common all over the world. In the Americas, for example, There are 1.3 forced laborers per 1,000 people. In Europe and Central Asia, it's 3.6 per 1,000 people. So it's, you know, developed countries have forced labor as well. And uh, it really is just, it's everywhere in the world. It also happens across a range of different industries. Lex had mentioned domestic work, and that is absolutely one of the huge... um, Areas where, pe- where forced uh, labor happens. There's also construction, manufacturing, agriculture, forestry, and fishing, accommodation and food services, wholesale and trade, personal services, mining, and begging. So that is pretty much like every aspect of the economy <laughs> in some sense is affected by forced labor. There are some regional patterns to forced labor. Even though it happens everywhere, forced labor is slightly different in different locations. So in the Middle East, for example, forced labor is most often for domestic work, um, whereas in developed economies, forced labor is more common in sectors like agriculture, construction and manufacturing.
1: It's interesting, too, the regional variation or like the pattern of what people are engaged in in forced labor because so many regions that have forced labor now have a history of colonization, of not being allowed to control their own economies of like a suppressed education sector that limits opportunities for their people, which leads to a much easier ground for things like debt bondage to take place. Even if there aren't already um, cultural scripts around debt bondage or the way that you resolve um, labor issues that might add to the, mixture of things that make forced labor possible or easier in those settings and so like you know it wasn't super surprising to me when Suresh's example was a factory in Malaysia um and part of that is that I you know I I focus mostly on the Indian Ocean world in my historical research and so I try and stay aware of the legacy of the practices I'm studying in the present and Malaysia is one of the places I study but also uh you know Malaysia was a place that has had circular labor migration for hundreds and hundreds of years. And as labor practices changed throughout history, what was a standard migration pattern all of a sudden has contracts and recruiters and, and all these other things added to the mix that change what were very traditional patterns of migration and labor that might not have been forced labor, you know, three, 400 years ago, but were forced labor by the time, you deal with the British Empire, for example.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I just want to stress how much um, like forced labor really happens across a range of industries. There was an American study that looked at. Um, they tried to sort of categorize all the kinds of sex and labor trafficking that happens in um, within the United States based on data from a human trafficking hotline, and they found. 25 different categories of work, um, and a lot of them were related to sex, but um, a lot of them were sort of just across all areas of the economy. The U.S. Department of Labor has a big list of uh, products that are made using forced labor, but they identify five that are sort of the the goods with the most forced labor listings, and uh, those are bricks, cotton, garments, cattle, and sugar cane. So, (laughs) two episodes we've already done, Kyla. (laughs) (laughs) Bricks next. Bricks next, yeah. In terms of who is affected by forced labor, I think it's really important to note that more than two-thirds of modern slavery victims overall are women and girls, so it's about 71%. It is true that some of this isn't forced labor, so some of it has to do with um, forced marriages, and it also is because um, forced labor in the commercial sex industry is overwhelmingly women and girls. It affects women and girls 99% of the time. So we will probably have to do an awkward episode on pornography at some point, Kyla. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, we're taking away everything everyone loves. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll have to wait until
2: after the second lockdown for that. Um,
0: yeah, yeah you let, <laughs> let let the people have their porn.
2: <laughs> but yeah, even when you take away sort of like um, sexual forms of forced labor, women and girls still make up more than half of forced labor victims, which at least for me went sort of against what I was imagining in my mind when I was imagining forced labor. Although I guess maybe not for you, Lex, because I think you were reading testimonials from women
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in focusing on in the long run for my dissertation project is specifically the testimony of uh, indentured Indian women. Um, And, you know, I think this is another place where a really solid grounding in the history of the African slave trade helps disabuse us of sort of gendered notions that we have about who would be involved in forced labor. I know for me this week, it like... It came as a shocking debunking of prejudices I didn't know that I held in my head. Um, But I was sort of in a similar position that you were describing, Kristen, where I was like, you know, it's weird. Like, I don't imagine forced labor as primarily being female in the 21st century um, when I was trying to figure out what you guys would likely be talking about and doing some clicking around. And I remembered that one of my classmates in my feminist theory class this week was like, you know, we were reading uh, a really excellent article by Hortense Spillers, who's sort of a, you know, did things that Judith Butler is famous for, but did them earlier than Judith Butler did them. Uh, you know, you can read the prejudices that led to those circumstances, I'm sure. But um, one of my classmates pointed out that Black enslaved women were expected to do the same or more work as Black enslaved men in the field. Um, and there was no gendering of field labor. Uh, you were assigned the amount that the overseer thought you could do based on your body. And it often didn't have any, any lighter standards for women. And so I think because so often we imagine situations where it's like, well, women probably are doing forced labor, like cooking or care work. It's easy to forget the circumstances where gender stereotypes cut a different way. So, For example, I know that a lot of forced labor in tea plantations is women because harvesting tea leaves is extremely delicate and the gendered stereotype about women being smaller and softer and more gentle um, cuts against men in that industry to put women in the uh, position where they are the majority of tea pickers and therefore the majority of people suffering abuse and forced labor practices in that industry, for example.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having said that, it, there are still more men in certain, um, industries for forced labor. So it, like mining, construction, and agriculture, those do still tend to have more men affected than women. Um, but definitely women are still engaged in forced labor in those contexts as well. And I think it's important to, to remember that for sure. Victims of forced labor also tend to be younger than the workforce overall, which I I think makes sense. Um, And uh, about a fifth of forced labor victims are children. So yeah, that's fucked up. Yeah, the other thing that I found uh, shitty slash interesting is that, so sexual exploitation is only about a fifth of all forced labor in terms of like the number of people that are involved. Um, But in terms of the, like, profits that are extracted from forced laborers, um, forced sexual exploitation makes up two-thirds of those profits. So it's an extremely lucrative form of exploiting people. That's disgusting. Yeah. So sexual exploitation makes an average annual profit per victim of about 22000 American dollars a year. Whereas, like, in the construction industry or agriculture or domestic work, it's all under $5,000 per person. So it's, you know, highly profitable way of completely fucking up a person's life. And then on the other hand, um, you know, agriculture, fishing, forestry, um, it is not as profitable per person, um, which is a really fucked up thing to say, um, but it it affects a lot more people. So approximately 3.5 million people in 2014 were in sort of that like agriculture, fishery, forestry um, area, and were in conditions of forced labor. So there are sort of two foundational causes of forced labor. uh, And those are poverty and globalization. Those two things together, create a lot of forced labor. But those are pretty broad concepts. And I think it's sort of beneficial to get a bit more specific about it. Uh, So I want to talk about six different dimensions that make people vulnerable to forced labor. Uh, Restrictive migration regimes, economic vulnerability, sexism, state fragility and conflict, authoritarianism, and capitalism. Our good friend, capitalism.
1: (laughs) No one's good friend.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So restrictive migration is sort of the first one. And forced labor is really closely connected to migration, and and in particular to human trafficking. So almost one in every four victims of forced labor are exploited outside of their country of residence, Um, which it, I don't know, Lex, is that, um, is that something that has changed, do you think, or has that, I mean, I know colonialism has huge sources of migration-based forced labor. But in context before that, did it used to be more localized, do you think? Or has it always been migration-linked? You
1: know, I, I'm not actually sure. I, I feel like my anecdotal guess would be that it's been migration-linked, if only because it's much easier to other and dehumanize someone you don't see every day. Um, and so... I think, you know, the history of racism, the history of migration, the history of forced labor, those things are all so connected for those reasons. Um, But, you know, uh, one thing that I think is important is to break down what we mean by migration, um, because so often in the circumstances that I'm studying, uh, I do mean crossing two to three oceans. But sometimes in the circumstances that I'm discussing, I'm talking about someone moving seasonally from you know, North India to Sri Lanka, which, you know, I don't know that that is always what people have in their head, or even people migrating from, you know, a set of northern provinces in one country to the southern provinces based on the agricultural season. And so I think migration, sometimes it's literally across the globe. Uh, And a lot of the times it's, it's not, and it's just the abusive changes in an existing migratory regime that exists like that pre-existed the labor conditions we're discussing now
2: yeah that's true for sure um and yeah you're you're totally right a lot of the cases um forced labor may involve migration but not necessarily even across national borders it can just be to sort of like different parts of a country one of the points that i came across a fair bit in my research was um that really, this is all linked to sort of our our regimes around limiting migration, right? So, if I mean, take the like the situation of seasonal migrant workers or temporary foreign workers. Um, if there was sort of like um, a less precarious way for people to do that work, and if there was a clearer pathway to citizenship, the argument is that like um, people would be a lot less vulnerable to forced labor. Because they wouldn't create those vulnerabilities that people could exploit to coerce people into doing low-paid work, unsafe work, working for longer than they had planned to, things like that. Um, So, yeah, ultimately, forced labor is linked to migration in part because there's a high degree of risk that's associated with migration, um, and that's especially the case for migrant women and children, Um, but it's true for, for anyone who's migrating. Um, And also because, you know, human trafficking occurs in a fair number of cases. So the next point is economic vulnerability. Poverty and lack of outside options are important risk factors for forced labor. In addition to poverty, people can be more vulnerable to forced labor when their family has undergone an income shock or is experiencing food insecurity. Lower education and literacy levels can also make workers more vulnerable to forced labor. And then sort of coupled with that is how well do pe- do um, societies protect protect people um, and especially protect people as workers? So weak labor protections can create pools of unprotected workers and workers can be unprotected because their, com- their country either... Lacks robust labor protections overall, or because they're in a category of work that is less protected. So, um, the expansion of precarious work also makes people a lot more vulnerable to forced labor, which I suppose lack of economic opportunity is sort of like, uh, a line that has not changed, um, in forced labor throughout its history, I would imagine. (laughs) Um, the other ones I don't want to talk about for too long, but, uh, sexism, you know, people are made more vulnerable to forced labor sometimes because their identity denies them full rights and personhood. And that's, that is the case for sexism, but it can also um, be things like caste-based racial discrimination and other dimensions. And it's important to note that sort of intersecting forms of discrimination play a role in forced labor. Authoritarianism. Sometimes you have a state that is North Korea, and it just does not care about giving citizens <laughs> rights, or China, yeah, yeah, yeah. State-imposed forced labor is a thing. <laughs>
0: yes, yeah,
2: yeah. On the other hand, you can have a state that doesn't have enough control. So when a state is in conflict, or if um, there's a state that's really fragile, that can create opportunities for, you know, criminal organizations to carry out illegal exploitation of workers because the state isn't able to actually protect people from things that might be illegal on the books.
1: And I think that goes too, especially in the era we're in with how quickly climate change is, uh, advancing. Um, although this is historically true as well, that like one of the reasons, uh, certain regions are hit harder than others with epidemics of people leaving the region, um, and engaging in forced labor tends to be because of a regional agricultural crisis, you know, um, the monsoon fails that year and the region that is normally the breadbasket is now in a drought and uh, there are no crops stored up or there isn't a robust social security system. And so the region that is often the agricultural heartland is suddenly a sending region for um, migrants who would otherwise have been gainfully employed and stayed in the region that they live in. Um, so I know that that's definitely a factor um, in you know if you look at the statistics forced labor congregates around certain areas and sometimes that's the recruitment systems that we were talking about earlier in the episode and it's the like predatory structures that prey on relationships of authority or power within a community but a lot of the times that is stacked on top of a you know an el nino change or a drought caused by that, or a flood that means that suddenly the Gulf Coast has a lot more unemployment than it used to, or that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, so I guess the secret seventh dimension is climate change. <laughs> oh, it's always climate change.
0: <laughs> climate change and capitalism are our nemesis on this show.
2: <laughs> yeah, and on that note, uh, we'll just talk about the last one. Several facets of our global economy create pressures within the markets for exploitable forms of labor, and those ultimately create the spaces for forced labor. There was a good report that I read by Open Democracy and the Sheffield Political Economy Research Institute, and they looked at four of what they call demand side causes of forced labor, but to me they were just like, this is like, these are four shitty things about capitalism that create forced labor. And so one of them was uh, concentrated corporate power and ownership, uh, then outsourcing, which we've talked about, we talked about that a lot in the forced labor, in the um, the um fast fashion episode, because, you know, there were labor gains uh, in the West, and that sort of pushed uh, the cost of labor up, and then companies sort of found a way to pay for cheap labor by outsourcing to other countries. Then the third one is irresponsible sourcing practices. So... Um, demands for sort of like really quick turnaround times, which don't give factories very much time. So they have to put people under really intense pressure and they have to get, you know, a lot of people in a room really quickly and not pay them very much. And then governance gaps. You know, if we didn't have 190 different countries, it might be easier to legislate labor rights. Um, although <laughs> who knows if we'd want to because the world is a dumpster fire. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um. <laughs> Not just spoil um, food for everybody ever, but, um, you know, I mean, that is unfortunately a sentence I say a lot at parties, you know, so many of the cases that I'm familiar with, uh, especially in the last couple of years, there has been a lot of journalism around forced labor and so many of them are connected to recent Western trends in wellness culture. Um, so the New York times ran a piece about natural wine and Valentina Passalacqua, I think is how you say her last name, but there, she, uh, has a winery in Puglia in Italy, and there are accusations involving migrant labor, and there was a lot of public self-flagellation in the media, and a terrible New York Times headline that said, Wine joins the 2020 debate over privilege and justice, uh, um, which is the worst way to say that you're about to talk <laughs> about forced labor practices ever. But, you know, there's also the Guardian ran a piece, uh, I want to say about a year or so ago, on how the Italian mafia makes millions of dollars exploiting people. Um, And it was in their long read section about like, are your tin tomatoes slave tomatoes kind of thing. So often these things are buried beneath extremely dramatic headlines that make me roll my eyes really hard. But the headlines are unfortunately so awful they're right a lot of the time. You know, there was a flurry of this kind of reporting in twenty fifteen ish around pets and livestock feed that are full of like small fish caught off the coast of Thailand and Cambodia, and you know that is predominantly men are involved in that. But then that same year, there was a ton of uh, journalism about nail salons in North America and how often that is often staffed by um, Vietnamese women. And so for me one of the things that it's really hard to wrap my head around is like how like how do you end up in a scenario where this seems reasonable or it seems safe or it seems possible and the important thing that I remind myself all the time is that like I have signed at least 3 if not more contracts for my labor in my life already and so often it is that piece of paper that makes people feel safe it is the form that says i need a copy of your passport it is the contract that supposedly guarantees you x y and z labor rights um and you know in paralleling that to my own work um and shout out to a scholar who's working in toronto right now uh radica mondia who's a professor at York University has a great chapter in her book on migration in the British empire on the institution of the contract and how essential that was to making the definition of what constituted not slave labor in the 1800s. Um, and that's usually it. That That's usually the slow slide into dangerous labor circumstances when it's not outright kidnapping or deception um, in the most egregious sense is It's just like a hard to read contract, which I have a lot of trouble reading contracts. So
2: we've all been there with telecoms, (laughs) except in a much lower stakes way.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, that's the scary, shocking, awful thing is like when I ask myself, how do people end up in these circumstances? The answer is we have not that good regulation and your employer can say a lot of things in your contract and you feel forced to sign it because- if you don't, you, in my case, if you don't, you can't pay tuition. But that is like worlds away from the circumstance of if I don't take this job, can my mom get her medical treatment? Can she even go to a hospital to find out if she needs it? Can my siblings go to school? And in a, you know, in an empathy plugging exercise, um, because. In my recreational time, I also read depressing things because work just isn't enough. Um, <laughs> there's an amazing, amazing novel I read uh, this winter. It's called We the Survivors. It came out in 2019 by a uh, Malaysian author whose name is Tash Aw. You know, he spent his whole literary career kind of exploring migration and class tensions and that kind of thing. But this book specifically focuses on social class in contemporary Malaysia and a working class protagonist who is engaged in a bunch of murky labor practices, sometimes the exploiter, sometimes the exploitee, and the novel is narrated to someone who could have ended up in that position, but you know, by virtue of the birth lottery, ends up a PhD student interviewing someone in that position instead of the person in the terrible position themselves, and I, you know. I'm sure readers of your podcast uh, are, you know, like me in that they have a hard time imagining the slow slide into what makes it okay to treat another human that way. And I will say that this novel, it really, really forced me in a different way to take a look at like, you know, I think I would never do that to another person, but have I ever been desperate enough to know?
2: Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting book. I love that you're... (laughs) On both of the podcast episodes you've been on, you've recommended really great reads for people.
1: It's nice. <laughs> yeah, every episode of Pullback now comes with a book recommended. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lex should just start a book club.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm like... I'm two procrastinations away from starting a Substack newsletter where I just recommend things I'm reading.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I would 100% follow that. (laughs) All right. Good
1: to know. Good to know.
0: (laughs) Well, on that note, uh, Lex, is there anywhere you want people to follow you? (laughs) They can learn more about all of your very interesting research?
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, I should tweet more about my research than I do, but you can find me on Twitter at... A T Sundersing, So it's a capital A, a capital T, and my last name, capital S, U N D A R S I N G H. It's very long. <laughs> well, we'll link to it to make it easy for people. Yes, yeah, you can find <laughs> me on Twitter at A T Sundersing. My Instagram has become a refuge, and so it is locked. Um, and so only, you know, I think only you guys get to see the food that I use to distract myself <laughs> from my depressing reading. But. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I sometimes put pictures of things that I'm eating on Twitter when I feel really proud of them. (laughs) So maybe there'll be more of that as we enter our second winter quarantine.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no, don't say that. (laughs) Okay. Well, (laughs) you can follow us (laughs) on
1: Twitter at Pullback
0: Podcast. And I know that this episode sounds like we ended on a really, like, this, this episode is pretty bleak. It's like, here's all of the shitty things. Um, the end. But don't worry, there there is another episode coming. And in that episode, we are going to talk more about what you as a consumer can do, what you can look for. Um, and oh boy, just like what the world is doing to combat forced labor, which I'm sorry to say, it still might be a depressing episode. But there is more to come you know, stay tuned for that. I'm sorry that this episode has just like, it's a, it's a, what's the word I'm looking for? A cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger, guys. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Lex, on this one. You were really helpful.
2: Hmm. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having me. All right. We'll catch you guys next time.
2: So, um, Kyla, do you want to introduce the episode or do you want me to?
0: um i will do it she said assuredly <laughs> okay hang on uh, da, 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 da. entertain me with my singing because i can't make faces